Right, well, for all practical purposes, um, today, Memorial Day, marks the beginning of summer. It's going to run from today on through Labor Day in the, the beginning of September. And I'm sure that many of you made, have made your summer plans. I know that some are planning to head to the lake. I know that some are planning just to head up north in general. Some are planning to um, visit relatives. Some are planning entire summer here in Rockford. Fun, fun for those of you who are going to do that. That's all right. At our house, our plans are made um, for this summer. We, we've made our plans. We'll let God direct our steps, though, in all these things. And like like last year, we are planning a, another camping trip on our way out to uh, Colorado. And we're scheduled to spend a bit of time at Rocky Mountain National Park. And that's like our first night there. We're going to get up really early in the morning and drive to there. And we're going to spend uh, three or four days... Five days, I'm not exactly sure. Uh, Rocky Mountain. And this is, this is what we're hoping to see. So I think we got some nice, you know, Yvonne, I'm hoping we can, Yvonne's not here. I'm hoping, guys, kids, we can see that. Okay, next slide. Just a gorgeous, big countryside. Uh, next slide. Lots of rivers running through the mountains. See the ice melting off. That'd be wonderful. Maybe see some animals. That'd be kind of neat to see, huh? Uh, we're going to be camping. We're not actually going to use a tent. We're going to use our, our setup that we used uh, last year. But we're hoping, hoping maybe for a campsite like that, surrounded by trees, lush. You guys think so? That'd be all right? Well, believe it or not, when we started planning our trip this summer, we faced some pushback and some opposition from our kids. See, last, last year we spent it in the Badlands. Our first night was in whatever that is, western South Dakota. Western South Dakota, Badlands are... So we first got there, and we spent only one night there, but I'm not exactly sure why, but the kids, like, absolutely loved it. Our our campsite wasn't particularly beautiful. In fact, it was just this flat open field. Um, Weather wasn't so nice. In fact, as we just came there, there was a a big storm that that was there that wiped through, and and even uh, our campsite had already been reserved, but it, uh, the, the, place the person who put the reserve thing there had wiped off and gone into the field. Several tents had picked up and gone into the field because of the rain and the wind coming and, and it rained all throughout the night. So I'm trying to figure out why you guys have liked it rained a little bit of the night. I remember. Because I was up making sure their windows were okay, right? Was it rain la- did it rain? I think it rained. Okay. Um, anyway uh, I'm not sure why they liked it. Maybe it was their first experience, kind of really camping, getting out, different. I'm not sure. But they expressed a desire to go back and said, hey, let's just spend a week in the Badlands, is what they really wanted to do. Now, for those of you who haven't been to the Badlands, um, the, the Hooks described it as like the moon on Earth, if you will. I mean, it just looks barren. So I got some pictures of, of the Badlands there. And that's, is that, that's not our picture, but it's very typical, right? And I got another picture here of that's wonderful, wonderful place, right? Uh, we got another one, and, and that, that that's not like that's maybe a couple hundred feet tall, maybe something like that. And here are the animals that we saw in the Badlands. <laughs> Exciting. And uh, here's the camp. This this is the campground where we were. I mean, just flat open, like that's like that's the campground where we were, right? It's not our picture, but uh, uh, I'm not I'm not sure. Now, now to be sure. In all fairness, the Badlands is beautiful. All right, uh, it's a beautiful place, but I think it's beautiful because it's so barren. All right, 
Uh, Rocky Mountain National Park, I think, is going to be far more breathtaking than the mountains are. They're bigger, the vegetation's greener, variety is greater. It's not so barren like all this is around us. And so, guys, I hope this year that you'll appreciate Rocky Mountain. And, and we've convinced them by now. But initially, there was this pushback. And so, why, why do I tell you these things? I mean, you, you don't particularly need to know where the Brandons are going on vacation, alright? You don't, you don't need to know that. But, but here it is, I tell you these things because there's similarity in our text this morning. There, there's part of the text that looks like the Badlands, and there's part of the text that looks like Rocky Mountain National Park. If you haven't done so, I invite you to open your Bibles to Hebrews 12. We're going to, to get at that. And they, these verses describe two mountains for us. One mountain is barren. And the other mountain is lush. One mountain is in a hard place and the other one is in a beautiful place. So I read this text. I want for you to listen for the two mountains. Kids especially can listen to that. What are the two mountains? Okay, Maybe I'll ask you when we're done. Verse 18. For you have not come to a mountain that can be touched and to a blazing fire and to darkness and gloom and whirlwind and to the blast of a trumpet and the sound of words which sound was such that those who heard begged that no further word be spoken to them. For they could not bear the command. If even a beast touches the mountain, it will be stoned. <clears throat> and so terrible was the sight that Moses said, I am full of fear and trembling. But you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God the heavenly Jerusalem, and to myriads of angels, and to the general assembly and church of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood which speaks better than the blood of Abel. Now, there's a contrast here. Okay, kids, what mountains are we talking about here? Yeah, Nathan, you get one. Sinai is the first one, and we got Mount Zion. Right? We see Sinai in verses 18 through 21. And we see Zion, excuse me, in verses 22 and following. And these two outlines form the basis of my message. Excuse me. They form the, could someone give me a drink of water, please? Ray, how about you do that? Thank you, sir. Um, These are the the, my outline this morning. Mount Sinai and Mount Zion. And my question of application to you is this. It's taken off this motif of our camping trip. Where are you camping? Are you camping in Mount Zion? Are you camping in Mount Sinai? Because that was the big question for the original hearers. They they had left their Judaism, come into the church. They had left Mount Sinai, had come into Mount Zion, and yet they were waffling. They were thinking about, about returning to Sinai. And now these mountains couldn't be more different. One comes with thunder and lightning and with terror and the other comes with joy and reconciliation and happiness. Now in some regards, these first century believers are like our kids who experienced the Badlands and loved them and want to return there rather than enjoying the breathtaking view of the Rockies. Or they've gone to the Rockies and seen them and said, Nah, and going back to the Badlands. That's a little bit like what was happening here with these first century people. And so what the author does, again, okay, all the way through Hebrews he does it. He shows the contrast. He says, this is what the Old Covenant was like, and this is what the New Covenant like is like. Isn't this better? 
Yes, Jesus is better, so let's press on. Well, let's begin this morning with Mount Sinai, verses 18 through 21. I'll read them to you again. For you have not come to a mountain that can be touched, and to a blazing fire, and to darkness and gloom and whirlwind, and to the blast of a trumpet, and the sound of words which sound was such that those who heard begged that no further word be spoken to them. For they could not bear the command, if even a beast touches the mountain, it will be stoned. And so terrible was the sight that Moses said, I'm full of fear and trembling. These words describe the giving of the law. When the Lord came down upon the mountain to deliver the law to Israel. And the best way for us really to deal with this is to go back to Exodus 19. Phil read that for us. I want to go back there. So open your Bibles back to Exodus 19. Second book in the Bible. I want to spend some time just reading and reflecting upon the terrors of what took place on Mount Sinai. I just want to press this upon you. My, my first point here, the, the terrors of the Old Covenant. I trust you remember what took place in the, the book of uh, Exodus. Israel's multiplying in the land of Egypt. Egypt then saw that. Even they're more numerous than the Egyptians. And so they enslaved them. And Israel cried out to the Lord in their bondage. And God remembered His covenant. He had made to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and so God delivered them from the hands of the Egyptians. He did it with a mighty hand, right? Remember the miracles and the plagues in which He got them out and then provided for them in the wilderness. Now, we pick it up here in Exodus 19, three months after they'd been released from their slavery. You see it there in verse 1. In the third month after the sons of Israel had gone out of the land of Egypt, on that very day, they came into the wilderness of Sinai. So here we are, three months since they finally left Egypt. When they set out from Rephidim and came to the wilderness of Sinai and camped in the wilderness, and there Israel camped in front of the mountain. And so they came to Sinai. Sinai is a barren place. I really think it's a good comparison with the Badlands. It's a, it's a place I remember being in Israel and being taken out into the wilderness. And uh, we think about wilderness, we think of maybe forests. We think about uh, jungles a little bit. When they thought wilderness, they thought barren, just rocks and nothingness. That's what it was like. It was not a pretty place. Few, few plants, few water, lots of rocks. I don't believe it was an accident that when God revealed His law, He revealed it on Sinai. I think it was a picture of the character of the law a little bit. It's a hard law. It's a hard place. But it's not hard because God's heart is hard. Look at how soft God's heart is towards Israel. Verses 3-6. through six. Moses went up to God and the Lord called to him from the mountain saying, Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob and tell the sons of Israel, You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to Myself. Now then, if you will indeed obey My voice and keep My covenant, then... You shall be my own possession among all the peoples, for all the earth is mine. And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak with the sons of Israel. See, God's heart for Israel was good. I mean, you just see it overflowing in these words. He rescued them from slavery. He planned to enter into covenant with them. His heart was to make them His own possession. His heart for them was that they should be a kingdom of priests and that they would be a holy nation. Furthermore, the law that was given is actually a good law. Isaiah 42, verse 21 says, The Lord was pleased for His righteousness' sake to make the law great and glorious. 
Paul said in Romans 7 that he confesses the law is good. And the people of Israel knew that God would give them a good law. Here was their response in verse 7. So Moses came and called the elders of the people and set before them all these words which the Lord had commanded him. And all the people answered together and said, All that the Lord has spoken we will do. And Moses brought back the words of the people to the Lord. And here we see Moses playing mediator back and forth. He brought the words down from God that I'm going to make you a people. You just obey. You're going to be my possession. And then they affirm their heart to obey God in everything. And so Moses comes back to the Lord and the discussion then continues. As the stage is set then for the giving of the law. Verse 9, the Lord said to Moses, Behold, I will come to you in a thick cloud so the people may hear when I speak with you and may also believe in you forever. Then Moses told the words of the people to the Lord. And the Lord also said to Moses, Go to the people and consecrate them today and tomorrow and let them wash their garments and let them be ready for the third day. For on the third day, the Lord will come down from Mount Sinai in the sight of all the people. And you set bounds for the people all around, saying, Beware, you do not go up on the mountain or touch the border of it. Whoever touches the mountain shall surely be put to death. No hand shall touch him, but he shall surely be stoned or shot through. Whether beast or man, he shall not live. When the ram's horn sounds a long blast, then you shall come up to the mountain. So Moses went down from the mountain to the people and consecrated the people and they washed their garments. He said to the people, Be ready for the third day. And do not go near a woman. When God comes, there's going to be an awesome display. He's going to speak in a thick cloud. Verse 9 says that. A ram's horn will sound for the entire assembly. I do believe this is a, a sovereign ram's horn. This isn't the people. This is God sounding a, a ram's horn to summon the whole congregation. The people need to prepare themselves, like it says in verse 10. Washing, washing their garments, cleansing themselves, keeping themselves pure sexually. It's alluded to in verse 15. Moses was to establish a, a boundary around the mountain so that no one would come near. He's going to pour out that yellow police tape all the way around the mountain so you can't go past that border. Nobody was come to near, come near not even a beast. And if anyone would so much as even just touch the mountain, they would be killed. They'd be stoned or shot through with arrows. The stage is set. Now the law comes. Verse 16. So it came about on the third day that when it was morning that there were thunder and lightning flashes and a thick cloud upon the mountain and a very loud trumpet sound so that all the people who were in the camp trembled. And Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet God and they stood at the foot of the mountain. Now Mount Sinai was all in smoke because the Lord descended upon it in fire and its smoke ascended like the smoke of a furnace and the whole mountain quaked violently. And the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder. Moses spoke and God answered him with thunder. And the Lord came down on Mount Sinai to the top of the mountain. And the Lord called to Moses to the top of the mountain. And Moses went up. This is not a peaceful scene. This is not tranquility before the gently flowing stream of water. This is terror and fear and danger and violence and stormy and loud, and smoky, and fiery, and shaking. It's no wonder the people were, were fearful. So I thought about trying to maybe compare this. I was thinking about uh, tornadoes that have hit recent days. 
had a rash of tornadoes. I was directed, um, Maggie Wiebe actually directed me this week to a video on YouTube where a, a man basically filmed his experience going through the, the tornado. He found himself um, as it went right through Joplin, Missouri. If you want to find, have you seen this video? 3.5 million people have seen it. Any of you have seen this? Okay, none of you. I could do this. You go on YouTube and just type in Joplin. And it's right there. 3.5 million views. It's a man who was, found himself at a gas station. And I'm not sure if he had an iPhone or something he had. And he had it and he was filming kind of the whole deal. And he heard the people, okay, now we need to come here in this back room. And it was mostly dark. So it's not like you could see it because the power was out. They didn't have any lights. They, you know, didn't. You know, all you, all you kind of heard was just, you knew what, what's going on, but you kind of get back. And at first, you know, it's like a, a well-mannered crowd, maybe going into some danger, not exactly knowing what they were going to experience. Uh, I'm guessing from the sounds, maybe 20 people, maybe 15 people, maybe 25, uh, somewhere around that. I mean, at least a dozen people. You can kind of hear all these different voices there. Um, Occasionally you get a glimpse of some kind of light or outsiders, lightning outside, but they're away from the windows, you know, kind of in the back where the storage is. And um, you can't see a lot, but boy, you can hear a lot. And as the tornado went through, I mean, my guess is it almost like went right over this gas station. You can hear the reactions of those who were bunched together in the building as it was totally demolished by the wind. I mean, well, at first they were well behaved. Pretty soon you can hear chaos erupt and, you know, things are shaking and, and there's people crying and shrieking and yelling. You may well take prayer out of the public forum, but prayers to Jesus for mercy and kindness and God help us were abounding there. Shrieks were made. Maggie Weeby told me that it reminded her of the shrieks of hell. I mean, you can just listen to it. It's, it's, it's pretty horrific. as the whole whole thing. And you don't know what's going on. You're just listening to these people and there's kind of shaking and, and um, rumbling and noise and they're yelling and, and pretty soon it's, it's all past. I mean, with hell that will last forever. Pleading and praying and helping. and You know, remember Lazarus. Just let me have a tip of the water on my tip of my tongue. I just like that. But this, by God's grace, lasted only, boy, maybe 90 seconds was the worst of it. And then after about five minutes, the whole ordeal is over. The video is, shows a hole kind of in the building where they kind of... And just as they start to leave, then he stops the video. But you can see kind of this uh, opening, at least of a little bit of light outside. Um, then he went back. It's very interesting. There's another link. He went back the next day and showed the very same gas station. Because when he went out, it was storming and, and what. But he, the next day, it was pretty calm. And he videoed and he had his video here and you could see it was a gas station. You could see the gas pumps. You could see the overhangs, but they were all like crumpled down. I mean, imagine the, the gas tank things kind of like ripped out and, and gone. You see like right through them, the, the panels that they had were, were all gone. Uh, and he said, here's our gas station. And then, and then he turns to where like the convenience store was and everything. And he says, well, there, that's what was, that's where we were. And if you look, children, I got some pictures of that, of the rubble there on the, uh, on your notes, it's just a cinder block wall just crumpled down. And he kind of walked, he said, well, that's, that's where we entered. He was kind of like, this is, there was nothing there, no door. And then eventually he went around and he showed how they were there. And apparently, by God's grace, they were just in this pocket of place that, that came down and it was you know, maybe three, four feet high where they could then all crawl out to safety. 
It's a fascinating video showing the destructive power of God and also shows you the grace of God to those who survived. That any would survive, that's amazing. But if you think about the scene upon the mountain, I want you to think about something similar. Maybe it's not a tornado coming through, but it is. It's violent shaking. It's loud. It is out of control. People are fearful. They are scared. They, they don't want anything to do with it. The mountain is, is there. they got this cloud. It's coming down. It, that's, what it's, that's what it's like. That was the nature of the first covenant. God comes in with gun blazing. Get your attention now. Verse 21. We continue. The Lord, so Moses up there, the Lord spoke, Go down and warn the people so they do not break through to the Lord to gaze, and many of them perish. Also let the priests who come near to the Lord consecrate themselves, or else the Lord will break out against them. <laughs> He's saying, Go make a boundary. And, and Moses, verse 23, is like, I did. The people cannot come up to Mount Sinai, for you warned us, saying, Set bounds around the mountains and consecrate. He said, I did that. But the Lord said to him, Go down and come up again, you and Aaron with you, but do not let the priests for the, and the people break through to come up to the Lord, or He will break forth upon them. So Moses went down to the people and told them. God said, Tell them again. Moses said, I did that! And I said, They're not coming! He said, Tell them again. Make sure they understand what's going on. Right? Priests, consecrate yourselves. Everyone stay far away. It's a little bit like when you're, you're in bed at night. And uh, your wife says, Steve, did you lock the doors? And you say, I, I think so. And your wife says, no, did you? Did you? I, 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 I'll go check. So you go and you check. I mean, this is, Moses, did you really tell him? I think God's making a point here just to say how serious this whole matter is. Right? When we have serious things with our kids, we'll repeat it again and again and again. Right, guys? Well, they got the message. Moses went up again and then the Ten Commandments were given in Exodus chapter 20. And then the ten, the first 17 verses have that. And then verse 18, right at the end, then the, the comments switch from the, the Ten Commandments then to the people. I want you to show you the people's reaction here. Verse 18, And all the people perceived the thunder and the lightning flashes and the sound of the trumpet and the mountain smoke and the people saw it, they trembled and stood at a distance. Then they said to Moses, Speak to us yourself and we'll listen, but do not let God speak to us or we will die. And Moses said to the people, Don't be afraid, for God has come in order to test you, in order that the fear of Him may remain with you, so that you may not sin. So the people stood still at a distance while Moses approached the thick cloud where God was. He said, We don't want to go in there, Moses. We don't, you talk to Him for us. We don't want that. That was the old covenant on Mount Sinai. It's a terrifying place. People didn't want to be there. And that's exactly what we see for the writer of Hebrews. Let's turn over there. Hebrews chapter 12 again. So we'll turn back and we'll, we'll stay in Hebrews 12 then the rest of the time. Again, you have not come to a mountain that can be touched, into a blazing fire, into darkness and gloom and whirlwind, into the blast of a trumpet, and the sound of words which sound was such that those who heard begged that no further word be spoken to them. They could not bear the command. If even a beast touches the mountain, it will be stoned. 
And so terrible is the sight that Moses said, I'm full of fear and trembling. We saw all these things in Exodus, right? The fire, the darkness, the gloom, the whirlwind, the trumpet, the begging of the people. No, you go, Moses, not me. The death penalty to anyone who touches the mountain. The only thing we didn't see in Exodus was the fear of Moses. Verse 21, when Moses said, I'm full of fear and trembling. Comes some question then about how was he really fearful at that time? Maybe there's some oral tradition about it. Maybe he's talking about another time when he approached God because in Deuteronomy 9, verse 19, Moses was fearful in approaching God. My guess is that's probably just concatenated both of these events and just said, in the presence of God, even Moses is fearful. Moses' strong leader Moses was fearful. When God revealed Himself, it was with fear and trembling. And so let me ask you a question. Okay, let's think about the question of the text. Why would anyone want to go back to that? I mean, they, they knew that. They knew the law. They, they saw the hardness of that. Then they, they come into the church. They experience the grace. They heard about Jesus. They heard about the Messiah. They saw the love. Right? They saw the Holy Spirit in action. Why, why would they go back to that? Seems crazy. Does it seem crazy to us? Well... I don't know and I don't understand. But I've been told many times from many, many different sources, um, wives who are abused from their husbands will return to their husbands and defend their husbands even at great hurt to themselves. Now, I'm not talking about those who have a commitment to marriage. Say, I'm gonna, I made that promise, I made that vow, so I'm going back. I'm talking about people who have no religious um, perspective at all who've been beaten and abused by their husbands, been involved in horrific marriages, right? Where they've been beaten with fists, manipulated, brainwashed, tortured. I've read stories of women who've, who've endured the most horrific circumstances in marriage. Drugs and alcohol are involved, beatings are involved, other kinds of abuse are involved, and, and the woman often will go back to the man. And as psychologists or people who study these things try to try to do that, they they say it's because their view of love is askew. They don't understand what love is. They they think being controlled and dominated by someone, that's how he's expressing his love to me. So they don't they don't understand that. In some regard, this was happening in the first century Jews, some strange reason. They're tempted to go back to the law. They're tempted to go back to that abusive husband, if you will. And I'm not I'm not calling God abusive, but I'm saying that the law has that effect upon our heart. It just beats down and continues to press upon us so hard. So why? Why do they go back? I think similarly, it may just be that these people who are thinking about going back didn't fully understand the love of Christ. They didn't understand what true, genuine, biblical love was about. Because entering God's presence, you have to earn your way. You don't have to be good enough. You don't have to say exactly the right things before God. All you need to do to come before God is be broken and dependent upon the Lord. Broken and dependent and needy. Not self-sufficient. Not in control. So you think about your life. Where are you camping? Are you camping in Mount Sinai? Are you going to camp in Mount Zion? Now, our, our danger here this morning is not going back to the sacrifices and rituals and diets. and That's not our danger, okay? But that doesn't mean there's not a danger for us. There still is a danger. And we can easily possess some of the attitudes they had of Sinai rather than Zion. We can easily fall into the rut that thinks that God is 
God is approving me because of my deeds. Look at, look at all that I've done. Look at how well I've attended church. Look at how well I am on Bible reading. Look at my knowledge. Look at my giving. I've given my checkbook. I've given myself. Look at all these people that I've served. And we can easily think that we're acceptable to God because of all the things that we are and do and be. It's not the case. It's not the case. We come to God broken and in need of His grace. The moment you come before God self-sufficient is the moment He rejects you. Remember the Pharisee stood up and says, God, I thank You. Look at how good I am. And God, You made me that way. Thank You for that. And the other one was down beating his breast and God said, that's the one who went up to his house justified. In Galatians 4, the same imagery is used of the two mountains. Hagar represents Mount Sinai and um, Sarah represented Jerusalem above. You might say Zion. And, and Paul said this, Tell me, you who want to be under law, do you not listen to the law? Those who are under the law are slaves, just like Hagar was Sarah's slave. But by faith, it's different. By faith, we're free. And Paul concluded the very last verse of, of Galatians 4 by saying that we are not the children of the bondwoman, but of the free woman. That is, by faith, we're free. We're not under the bondage of the legalism of the law. And when I ask you where you're camping, I just know that there's seeds of legalism in all of us. I think it's Elise Fitzpatrick who says we're all born legalists. Is that right? Hard, hard, we're hardwired legalists. So we are. We like the law. We want the law. We want to show God how good we are. We want to be in control. We want to be the checklists. What do I need to do, God? Give me the checklist and I'll do it. Let me just be that. Let me just be what I am. And now that I am what I am, I can come to your presence. God says, no, come to me all who are weary and heavy laden. We need to come to God broken and contrite. And we constantly need to bring ourselves back to the grace of how we come to God. The temptation for us at church is to obtain a level of righteousness where we think that's the way. And it's not. I think a Pilgrim's Progress shows how easily you get turned off the path Christians travels to the celestial city and met upon a worldly wise man. If you've not read Pilgrim's Progress, I commend it to you. This is in the old Bunyan-esque English. Worldly wise man says to Christian, In yonder village named Morality, there, na- there dwells a gentleman whose name is Legality. A very judicious man, a man of a very good name. And that has skill to help men off with such burdens as thine is. From their shoulders, yea, to my knowledge, he hath done a great deal of good this way. Ah, and besides, he hath skill to cure those that are somewhat crazed in their wits with their burdens. To him, as I said, thou mayest go and be helped presently. His house is not quite a mile from this place. And if he should not be at his home himself, he has a pretty young man to his son whose name is Civility that can do it as well as the old gentleman himself. Therefore I say, thou mayest be eased of thy burden, if thou art not minded to go back to thy former habitation, as indeed I would not wish thee, thou mayest send for thy wife and children to thee to this village, where there are houses that now stand empty, one of which thou mayest have at reasonable rates. Provision is there is also cheap and good, and that which will make the life more happy is, to be sure, there shalt live by honest neighbors in credit and good fashion. Now is Christian somewhat at a stand. 
But presently he concluded, if this be true that this gentleman has said, my wisest course is to take his advice. And with that, he thus spoke further. Christian, sir, which is my way to the honest man's house? Worldly wise men. Do you see yonder hill? Sinai. Oh, yes, very well. Well, by that hill you must go, and, and the first house you come to is his. So Christian, here it is, he turned out of the way of grace to go to Mr. Legality's house for help. But behold, when he was got now hard by the hill, it seemed so high, and also the side of it was next to the wayside. It did hang over so much that Christian was afraid to venture further, lest the hill should fall on his head. So steep. Wherefore there he stood still, and he wote not what to do. And his burden now seemed heavier to him than when he was in the way. And there came also flashes of fire out of that hill that made Christian afraid that he should be burned. Here therefore he sweat and did quake for fear. And Bunny's just pulling this right from Exodus 19. Quaking for fear. And now he began to be sorry that he had taken Mr. Worldly Wiseman's counsel. And with that he saw evangelists coming to meet him. At the sight also of whom he began to blush for shame. So Evangelist drew nearer and nearer, and coming to him, he looked upon him with a severe and dreadful countenance, and thus began to reason with Christian. If we had more time, we'd reason, we'd hear everything that Evangelist said to him. But basically, he said, why'd you get out of your way? You were headed to the, to the yonder wicked gate. That's where you need to go. Why did you turn to, to the hill of morality? Why'd you go there? Why'd you go to the law? It's, he makes promises. Your burdens are going to fall off there. Your burdens aren't going to fall off there. They're going to get bigger. So go to the celestial city and on the path, that's the only way you'll have your burden removed. When Christians unto carnal men give ear, out of their way they go and pay for it dear. For a master worldly wise man can but show a saint the way to bondage and to woe. Charles Wesley, when he talked about his method of preaching, he said this. He said, when I preach, I preach the law. I preach it strong and hard. And I continue to press what the law is and all of its needs and requirements upon us. And then I press it further still. And I press it harder still and harder still. And then when the, the people think they can't quite endure any much longer, I, I still press it hard. And when they're right on the precipice, then I preach grace. Lavish and free. And here it comes. And that's what I want to do today. We've preached law, uh, preached gospel. Comes to my second point, Mount Zion. Verse 22. For you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and the myriads of angels, to the general assembly and church of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood which speaks better than the blood of Abel. Here we are coming to Zion, not to Sinai. And he's saying that the characteristics of Zion are so different than the characteristics of Sinai. Zion, by the way, is a, is a biblical term that's kind of tough to nail down. Um, fundamentally, Zion just means the city of David. It means that little hill where Jerusalem is built upon. That In 2 Samuel chapter 5, verse 7, David first conquered, conquered the, the city of the Jebusites. It's called the city of David. When the ark was brought into the temple, it was brought from the city of David, which is Zion, up 
up the hill, kind of into the temple area, which is up, up even beyond where the city of David technically is. It's just a, it's a, it's a place. But with Zion, often terms in the Bible, it, it's closely associated with God's blessing and the people of God, the believing remnant. Psalm 129, verse 5, May all who hate Zion be put to shame and turn backwards. Let's not hate the little hill. Let's hate the people. Hate the godly people. May those who hate the godly people be turned away and turned backwards. And you also see the association of the people of God, the protection of God, the delight of God. The Lord bless you from Zion. Psalm 128, verse 5. Psalm 87, 2 and 5. The Lord loves the gates of Zion. And of Zion it shall be said, This one and that one were born in her, and the Most High Himself will establish her. Establishing Zion. Loving Zion. Loving the people of God in the place of God. Worshipping the true God. That's what Zion is. And here in our context, Zion is used to depict symbolically, if you will, the, the total blessings of God which we have by faith in Jesus Christ. And we come to Mount Zion, we have come to seven great realities. The city of the living God, to myriads of angels, to the church of the firstborn, to the judge of all, to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus and to sprinkled blood. And what I want to do this morning is just spend some time, just a little bit of time on each of these seven characteristics and, and, and thereby show you how much better Jesus is. How much better is the New Covenant? How much better is Zion? I mean, that's what the original writer was trying to do. I just trust the Holy Spirit will use this in your hearts. I want to show you how lovely the Rocky Mountains are rather than the Badlands. And this will lead us nicely into the Lord's Supper as we see in verse 28, the sprinkled blood of Jesus. 24. Well, verse 22 says, You have come. It's a present reality. These things, if you look in verse 22 through 24, oftentimes they, they appear future. But he says, you have come to these things. Now, this is what theologians like to say. This is the already, the not yet. We are already in heaven. We are not yet in heaven. In Christ, we are already in our heavenly home. Ephesians chapter 2 says, we're raised up and seated up with Christ in the heavenlies. And yet, in some regard, we're not, we're not there yet. But that's how these words speak. We've come to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem. Zion is God's city. It's where... The blessings will come. It's where God will dwell. And that is, by the way, the great news of heaven itself is that we are where God dwells. Revelation 21, verse 3, And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is among men, and He will dwell among them, and they shall be His people, and God Himself will be among them. What's so marvelous about heaven is that God comes and dwells with us and is with us. The heavenly Jerusalem is the city of the living God. Well, the Indianapolis 500, the hundredth time that race has gone is today. In fact, it started at 12 Eastern. How long ago was that? It's like five minutes ago. They're going. Um, Danica Patrick, if you've been reading Rockford Register at all, you know that Danica Patrick is like the cover lady around here because she's from Roscoe. And Roscoe is like Danica Patrick's city and you know, people celebrate that and they rejoice in that. Well, there's nothing compared to you being in God's city, is there? Imagine that. Yeah. God's city is Love's Park. God's city is Byron, right? Or God's city is Rockford, whatever. God's city is the heavenly Jerusalem. As we are in Jerusalem, we are in God's city, not just some personality or some celebrity. He dwells among us. That's why Philippians 3.20, our citizenship is in heaven because we are 
citizens of God's city. Well, second, we've come to myriads of angels. Again, we're brought to the heavenly reality of the city where God dwells. We read that there are myriads of angels in Zion. Now, the writer's not trying to be exact. Myriads is like bazillions. Kids, you ever use that word? Gazillions or trillions or some made-up word. That's what it is. Just myriads, just lots, just many, many angels. Rockford may be filled with lots of potholes, but heaven is filled with many angels. Revelation 5.11, I looked and heard the sound of many angels around the throne and the living creatures and the elders, and the number of them was myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands. Just lots of them around. And think about this. Angels are servants. It says in Hebrews 1, verse 14, Are they not all ministering spirits sent out to render service for the sake of those who inherit salvation? Aren't angels servants to minister to the heirs of salvation? That's what angels are. They are our servants. The best way to think about heaven, this heavenly Jerusalem, is to think about Disneyland. And I know that some of you have been there. Right? Sam? Right, Emily, Becca, right, you've been there? It's very, very fun, huh? Like three months ago or two months ago. Well, I know some of you haven't been to Disneyland. Last time we were there was a long time ago out in California. But, but you know enough about Disneyland to know what it's like. There are workers all over the place and their aim is to serve you. Before you enter Disneyland, there are people out probably taking your pictures probably helping you, probably asking questions, probably seeing some big life dolls, Mickey Mouse or Daffy Duck or something like that. You come to the ticket counter, there are people there serving, helping you deal with your tickets. You go inside and there are those who work in the shops selling items. There are those who work in the restaurants, right, cooking the food, preparing the food and serving you. They operate the rides. People there, there are people there who sweep the streets there are those who, who accompany the myriad of all these Disney characters. Wile E. Coyote and Bugs Bunny and you just go right on down the list. Woody and, and them all. Behind the scenes, scores of administrative workers seeking to make this happen. Trying with all their might to make Disneyland the, you know, the happiest place on earth. That's a bit like what angels are for us. They are our servants in heaven to make sure that our stay in heaven is as happy as possible. That's who servants are. That's who angels are. We've come to myriads of angels. And we've had a taste of them on earth. It says in Hebrews chapter 13, verse 2, some have even entertained angels without knowing it. But that's who angels are. Helping us, serving us in the great heavenly reality. Alright, we've come to the city of the living God, the myriads of angels, the church of the firstborn. This is the general assembly and church of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven. Here we're brought back to earth. Lester view of Zion is too heavenly. Here, here we are. We're, we're part of this assembly. We're part of this gathering. And we are the church of the firstborn. We are the, the assembly of those enrolled in heaven. During the summer, you enroll in school for the fall. You're not there yet, but your spot is reserved because your name's on the books. And, and the similar idea is here is that we are... We are maybe here upon the earth, but our names are written there and our reservations are there. We are enrolled in heaven. This is a great reality of the book of life. There is a book. 
It's often referred to in the Scriptures. If you're a believer in Jesus Christ, your name is on that book. Revelation 20 says this way, I saw the dead, the great and the small, like all of them, standing before the throne, and books were opened. These are the books of the deeds that everyone has done. And another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged from the things which were written in the books according to their deeds. Basically, law. What's going to happen there? It's condemnation is coming there. And they were judged, every one of them, according to their deeds. Condemnation, condemnation, condemnation. But, if anyone's name was found in the book of life, he was saved, but if your name was not there, he was thrown into the lake of fire. I said, through faith, our, our names are written in the book. We are, we are enrolled in heaven and our experience on, on earth is like this, is that our, um, we're dwelling here with those who have, have a place reserved. So imagine, if you will, uh, I know the Drays before they went to um, Disneyland um, had a big, long paper chain. And we've begun that too for our vacation. We've got this big, long paper chain at our house. And every day, it's kind of fun, Laura, thanks for the idea. Every day we just kind of take off take off the little chain to see what's happened in the summer when our California vacation is coming, when we get to see Rocky Mountain National Park. Now imagine living in a family like that that's anticipating and hoping for and longing for the, the day in which vacation comes. Folks, that's where we are. We are longing for the heaven, all of us together. We are the general assembly of the firstborn. That means that we have our inheritance in heaven. That's what the firstborn gets... It's the inheritance. So we all get the inheritance. And we're all just, just taking off those, those rings. Kind of one day, every day we're a day closer. May 21st wasn't good enough. But we're, we're waiting and waiting for that day. Uh, create a joy and excitement and prospect at arriving the happiest place in creation. It's all ours. We have come to the city of the living God, the myriads of angels, church of the firstborn, and to God, the judge of all. Now, when you look at that, at first it seems kind of strange. You'd think that God, the judge of all, would be on Sinai, not in Zion, right? But, you know what, there's a presence. The presence of God, the judge of all, brings a sense of security. Do what's right and you'll have no fear of the governing authorities. Hebrews 13. Um, when I traveled to Israel, it was comforting when you saw a soldier there with a gun. Because you know that you're safe. And so likewise, when you know that God is the judge, it's a safe, secure place. We know in heaven there will be nothing unclean. No one who practices abomination and lying shall ever come into heaven. But only those whose names are written in the land's book of life will be there. Heaven's a pure place where righteousness reigns, where evil is absent. And the only way that can happen is if God is there in His judgment, keeping out those who need to stay out and keeping in those who need to come in. There's security and there's blessing in that. And, and we taste of that as a church. Um, I mean, we're not, we're not perfect in any sense. There's sin among us. Um, but there is a sense where God protects us as a judge. The Gospel goes forth. What happens are those who love their sin come in. And they don't, like, they don't hang around if they love their sin. They're gone. They don't like to hear that. So God, just, just being the judge, kind of weeds people out. So what do we have? We have people here who sin, who hate their sin, who are seeking a, a measure of righteousness. And there is a, a protection among us, a, a peace among us, a, a righteousness, a purity among us, God's people. And, and if you doubt that, just think about this, okay? Think about your, your unsaved friend, Joe Sixpack, okay? And just think about... 
filling a whole church with that and kind of like, let sin abound. Let's not address it. Just kind of come into our assembly and frolic about what kind of place would this be? It wouldn't be a, a place of security and protection because God wouldn't be judged there. There would be no filtering. There would be no sifting. But instead, God is the judge and it does have a purifying, refining effect upon us. It's a place of blessing. Another characteristic of Mount Zion is that we come to the spirits of the righteous made perfect. There's some question about what exactly is being talked about here. These Old, Old Testament believers, some say that now they're, they're made perfect, or maybe it's the New Testament believers who have died. You know, I have no idea what this means. But what it means, it describes again the church. And describes in a little bit different way, rather than being the general assembly and church of the firstborn, here it describes us as being the spirits of the righteous made perfect. Listen, we are here, Rock Valley Bible Church, we are here standing before God, not because we are perfect, but because we are made perfect in Jesus. Catch that. It's what God does with us when we believe the Gospel. Romans 5.19 As through one man's disobedience... The many were made sinners, even so through the one act of righteousness, through the obedience of the one, the many will be made righteous. Through Adam's sin, we are made sinners. When Adam sinned, you became guilty. Lots of people hate that. They say, no, 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 I've got to be guilty on my own. No, Adam was our federal head when he sinned. We sinned and we are guilty. People hate that doctrine. But I say love that doctrine because it works exactly the same way. Jesus was righteous and He made us righteous. No, no, no! I need to be righteous on my own! Well, that will lead you to the pit. No, no. Jesus, by His act of righteousness, through faith in Him, then we are made righteous. That is the glories of the Gospel. And it's throughout the book of Hebrews, there's, there's a showing that the law can't make people perfect. But grace can, right? For through the law, since there's only a shadow of the good things to come, can never make perfect those who draw near. Their offerings, their sacrifices, they can never be perfect because the very fact they come the next year shows that they haven't been made perfect. Implication, Jesus made us perfect because He only sacrificed Himself once. The one sacrifice perfects for all time. Those were sanctified. Hebrews 11.40 talks about the Old Testament saints. Apart from us, they would not be made perfect. But with us, they are made perfect. Jesus is the author and perfecter of faith. And Zion is filled with those who are perfect people. Perfect in Jesus Christ. Well, sixthly, verse 24, we come to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant I mean, this is the great characteristic of Zionism. Jesus is there. When we read Jesus here, He's the mediator of a new covenant. That is that Jesus stands between us and God. At Mount Sinai, it was Moses who stood between Israel and God. And now it's Jesus who stands between us and God. And that is the story of the book of Hebrews. Really? Chapter 5 is all about the priesthood of Jesus. Chapter 7 is all about the priesthood of Jesus. It's arguing that the, that the former priests weren't good enough. It said in chapter 7, verse 11, if perfection was through the Levitical priesthood, what further need was there for another priesthood to rise? Not according to the likeness of Aaron, but according to the order of Melchizedek. Why do we need another priest? Because the first priesthood was faulty. But we now have this priest. And what does a priest do? 
A priest brings us to God and Jesus perfectly brings us to God. Hebrews 7.23 The former priests on the one hand exist in greater numbers because they are prevented from death from continuing. But Jesus, on the other hand, because He continues forever, holds His priesthood permanently. And it was fitting for us to have such a high priest, holy, innocent, undefiled, separated from sinners, exalted above the heavens, who does not need daily like those high priests to offer up sacrifices, first for his own sins and then for the sins of the people, because this He did once for all when He offered up Himself. For law points high... Men as high priests were weak, but the word of the oath which came after the law points a son made perfect forever. It means that Jesus is the mediator between us and God. He's a mediator not only as a priest is a mediator, but he's also a mediator of a new covenant. That's what chapter 8 is all about. The new covenant. Moses mediated the old covenant. Jesus mediates the new covenant. And this new covenant is such that God puts His laws into our minds and, and writes them on our hearts. And He says, I will be their God and they shall be My people. They don't need to teach everyone to know the Lord because all will know the Lord. Right? You sense this, this perfect harmony between us and the Lord through Jesus Christ, His perfect mediatorial role. And, and then even comparing, contrasting the covenant we have in the new covenant with the old covenant, it says this, if that first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion sought for a second. If that first one had been perfect, it would have worked. No occasion sought for a second, right? But, but the very fact that Jeremiah says, a new covenant I will give you, says the first one isn't good enough. We need something to oversee it. And it says then, when he said a new covenant, he's made the first obsolete. And what's obsolete is growing old and ready to disappear. Such is the ways of the old covenant. Finally, we've come to the city of the living God. We've come to myriads of angels. We've come to the church of the firstborn. We've come to God, the judge of all. We've come to the spirits of the righteous made perfect. We've come to Jesus. And finally, we come to the sprinkled blood which speaks better than the blood of Abel. When Moses received the law, he sprinkled blood on lots of things. On the book, on the people, and everything. In fact, you can read that in Hebrews chapter 9. It says in verse 18, when the first covenant was given, even the first covenant was not inaugurated without blood. And you can read about this next Exodus 24 if you want. For when every commandment had been spoken by Moses to all the people according to the law, and that's Exodus 20, he gets the law and he repeats that for all the people through 23, and 24 is like right at the end. After he does that, when every commandment, then... He took the blood of the cows and the goats with water, scarlet wool, and hyssop and sprinkled both the book itself and all the people. So he's taking his book of the law and he's sprinkling that and he's sprinkling all the people with the blood. And he's saying, this is the blood of the covenant which God commanded you. He's, he's sanctifying, he's cleansing this law with this blood. And in the same way, he sprinkled both the tabernacle and all the vessels of the ministry of the blood. He's just taking this thing and, and spreading blood all over the place. So why is he doing that? It's... It's the way things are cleansed in the Old Testament. It's the way God has made the world. You cleanse things ritually through blood. That's what verse 22 says of Hebrews 9. And according to law, one may almost say all things are cleansed with blood and without shedding of blood there is no forgiveness. And that's why in the Old Testament, right, blood was often the animal sacrifice taken. They'd collect the blood and they'd sprinkle it upon the altar. The high priest, when he went in, Day of Atonement, would come in twice. Remember, he sprinkled it with his finger and his, fourth, for his thumb. Kind of sprinkling it seven times there upon the altar. The sprinkled blood is the way that you are cleansed in God's sight. He's talked that over and over and over again. And so here's the good news. So the blood of Jesus cleanses us. 
we have the sprinkled blood of Jesus. Through the shed blood of Jesus, God imputes His righteousness to us. And though we're unclean, the blood of Jesus makes us clean. And it says here, the sprinkled blood speaks better than the blood of Abel. You know, the blood of Abel spoke. Abel was killed. It's recorded for us in Genesis chapter 4. God said to Cain, the voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. So Cain killed Abel and there his blood was spilling out and somehow it's on the ground. It's crying out to God. It's crying out to God. You know what's crying? Vengeance, God! Vengeance! He killed me! He needs to be just! He needs to be avenged! A vengeance comes! That's how Abel's blood speaks. You know how Jesus' blood speaks? It says we have the blood of Jesus which speaks better than the blood of Abel. The blood of Jesus says this, Mercy, God! Mercy! 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 So much better than the blood of Abel. The sprinkled blood that we have. I just say, church family, let's camp in Mount Zion. Let's not camp in Sinai. Are you camping there? 